Welcome to Foreman of Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And today we're talking about beef and meat and butchery. And it is a giant and complicated subject. And uh, Cindy, you have a unique perspective because your dad was in the meat business your he whole was. life, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yep. My great-grandfather and grandfather had uh, butcher shops in, in New York, Pennsylvania. And my actually my grandpa also had his brothers worth working with him in the meat shop. Um, so my dad grew up with that right back of their house. And uh, <clears throat> my dad started working there as probably five or six years old when they would put a stool out and he would stir the big pot of scrapple that was cooking and was a master butcher by the time he was 17 years old and went off to be in World War II and stationed in Guam. Um, he later um, worked for, when he came back from the war, he had jobs as head of butcher departments and small grocery store chains, eventually worked for Swift, which is a major uh, U.S. meatpacking uh, house, and um, eventually became vice president of Hardee's when it was a huge chain in our country in the 60s and 70s, and then worked for VP of Ponderosa uh, when it was also a very large chain in the 70s into the 80s. And my dad was in charge of purchasing all food products for all of their company and licensee stores. So my dad actually traveled the world um, <clears throat> looking for great product for those those restaurants and also uh, help them to develop their chains throughout the world and um, bought companies and did all kinds of things for these corporations. But my dad was also uh, um, an import exporter near the end of his life. He was living in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, being a major seaport, he brought. He was the first person to bring in lamb from New Zealand into the United States. So he actually started that whole program. So my dad was worked until the day he passed away, and day before he passed away, actually. And um, yeah, so I grew up with. You know, he would make sausage at home. He would uh, grind corned beef. He would do all kinds of you know meat butchery at home. And um, yeah, we really. It was fun to get to see him do some of his thing at home and we all benefited from it. So in other words, when I've teased you in the past on the program about being the butcher's daughter, I am. That's legit. Yes. Very Bob Wolf. So amazing man. So so what, what do you think are the like five or six most popular cuts? And I don't mean necessarily just restaurant cuts, but you know, what, what, what are those products that most people are most familiar with? And, and and conversely, what are the things that you think most people are not that are excellent? Right. I think, you know, a lot of the steaks are obviously very familiar to people. New York Strip, ribeye, uh, T-bone, uh, even porterhouse, and, of course, beef tenderloin. Uh, people are certainly familiar with short ribs. Uh, and so, you know, you have those meats that are or those uh, cuts that are very, very popular. And a lot of people buy ground beef. That's obviously a tremendous amount of byproduct comes from a, a steer. So there's a lot of inexpensive ground beef to be had. And we love that in this country. So I think those are things that are very familiar. People might know what a top round is, a top butt, um, you know, especially if they're making things like chicken fried steak and things like that, that you would use those cuts for. Uh, but uh, probably anything else would not be familiar. What do you think is the most underappreciated cut? 
I I think it comes down to things that are need to be braised. So, you know, you can buy stew meat, what they call stew meat in the butcher shops. um, And a a lot of that um, cooking, like in Persian food or, or uh, European cooking or old Southern cooking, um, you know, you use a lot of that sort of off cut that tends to be that is is uh, not tender and uh, needs to be slow cooked. So I think those things I wish sometimes those things were used more at home. I know there's more work that goes into braising something, but gosh, you can feed a lot of people for a lot less money if you if you are open to buying some of these off cuts that are perfect for uh, slow cooking. You know, you also have things like the culotte steak and some of these new cuts that people are also familiar with. And um, they started off as inexpensive cuts and they have also you know uh, risen in price because of always popularity uh, one of the other things that always surprises me is flank steak um used to be very accessible and was always you know like 375 a pound you know it was inexpensive and now that is a, a pretty expensive piece of meat to use now so you know these these off cuts that um you know eric uh from Bell's Point Meat can talk about later. Um, that's a really good question for him when we introduce him. He's uh, been my meat purveyor ever since we came to Baltimore and uh, simultaneously opened his business as when we opened Savannah. Um, you know, we've had a long relationship and he can answer some questions about what he thinks would be good, uh, low cost product to use now for families. Yeah, that's, that's I was kind of curious because we're gonna talk to Eric in the next segment. I was curious about your perspective. I was also thinking about there's some things that that uh, you know I end up looking for, whether it's in Italian cooking or or more peasant stuff that is often uh, what I have a passion for. Things like lamb necks or veal breasts that I don't know that there's a translation into beef for those things. No, I. I can't think of anything. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, the short ribs are, um, and the cut off of the short rib is something that probably would be, I don't know how available it is, but it's certainly something that has a lot of bone, a lot of fat and a lot of, and, and a good amount of meat that again, something like that, that, that cut off the short rib could be something that people could braise and, and, um, get, uh, some nice flavor from and, and have, you know, cook it with some wonderful vegetables and, and uh, really extend the meal through that. Well, that's uh, that. I mean, that's a question. Obviously, we can ask Eric as well mm-hmm. when he comes on with us. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you is for you, I mean, and being the butcher's daughter, what are your top five all-time favorite beef preparations? You know, X cut prepa- cooked in such and such a way with this is a garnish or this right. is uh, right. Well. There's no question my favorite way to deal with beef tenderloin is in the form of a Wellington. There's just something about having that pastry capture every bit of the juice and every bit of the smell of the beef. And particularly when you do something like a Wellington and you don't have to do the expensive part. Well, the tenderloin is is expensive enough without adding the truffle and the foie gras. Uh, which is how I make my Wellington. Um, but you could certainly just put button mushrooms in there, um, a little bit of shallot and button mushroom, you know, in what, when you make a Wellington, you clean the tenderloin, you leave it whole, or you have a section of it, depending on how many people you're going to feed. And then you butterfly it open. And in that you put, I put slices of truffle and seared foie gras, but I love doing, we, and we also do it this way at the restaurant, uh, 
sauteed off chopped button mushroom with a little bit of shallot. You could even add a tiny bit of garlic if you love garlic. Uh, you could add a little bit of fresh thyme, very tiny bit, very, very little, or a tiny, tiny little bit of fresh rosemary uh, to that mushroom mixture and lay that, and you want it to be cold. Uh, you cook it, then you cool it, and then you put it in the meat. You would never want to put a hot product inside of something. It's like, it's like, would you put hot stuffing inside of a turkey when you're about to roast a turkey? Of course not. You're putting cold stuffing in. It's the same thought. Um, while the beef tenderloin doesn't have a cavity like a bird, you are trying to create a cavity by butterflying the tenderloin. And you can lay that in. You could even put bacon in there. You could put this, you know, there's there's lots of things you could put in there. Uh, but I think button mushrooms are a great, inexpensive way to handle that. Uh, I then uh, sear the piece of meat. Actually, let me backtrack. I, I, I will either grill or sear that piece of meat before I butterfly it and stuff it. That is the easiest way to handle it. That way you do get some cooking going on on the outside. You get some caramelization process going on the outside of the meat. If you have a big enough pan, it is best to sear it off. Nice and not, not, don't overdo it. Um, you're not looking for dark, rich color. You're just looking for sort of a, a medium brown color. Maybe you're searing it off in a hot pan and corn oil for like three minutes on each side, um, getting the back, the side side as well, top, bottom, and side. And then you butterfly it, stuff it, uh, season it well inside and outside, and then you wrap it in puff pastry, brush that, close it off, brush it with egg wash, and bake it in the oven. It's really fantastic. That is a bit complicated. Um, uh, another one of my favorite ways to serve beef tenderloin is to roast it whole. Um, I just think things as gross pieces, we call it a gross piece when it's a whole piece. Um, the, the food benefits from being cooked as one large piece and slicing afterwards, allowing so it to rest before slicing does so much for that product. So that when I was a kid, that was always called Chateaubriand. Where it's mm -hmm. a longer piece of uh, beef tender, right? So right. Any and, any any, uh, any non-beef tender uh, favorites? Sure. Um, I love a porterhouse uh, that does have the tender on it, as well as the New York strip. Um, that's a big piece of meat. Um, I would just season it at, well and grill it. But a, a less expensive uh, cut is the flank steak, even though it's more expensive now than it used to be. Flank steak, I just made for employee meal on Sunday night. And um, what I do, you have to clean it well. There's a couple points of silver skin on there that you have to remove. Um, I, I do lightly score it before I cook it. It will buckle uh, in extreme heat, and you don't want that to happen. So I just do four thin. I do not cut into the meat very far at all. It's barely breaking the surface of the meat. But I'll do four sort of cuts across the flank steak. Um, I season it well with salt and pepper. And this Sunday I did uh, a little mixture of, and you don't want to overdo it. You don't need a, you know, a crust of this. Um, I did a package of flank steak, which was six flank steaks. I was feeding, you know, close to 30 people. And I did probably two tablespoons of chili powder and a tablespoon of um, mild curry and mixed that with corn oil, salt and pepper. 
and rub that over uh, both sides of the flank steak. And I only, I did that about 10 minutes before I grilled them and I grilled and then finished my roasting and my guys like the meat well done. They're used to eating it that way. So I cook it very slowly in a 250 degree oven. So once I've marked it on the grill, I put it on the sheet pan. I make sure it still has a decent amount of the marinade on. I may, may lightly remarinate it and then go into a low oven and cook it nice and slowly because I've, again, I've already got the caramelization that I need on the outside because I grilled it. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm cooking it slowly and for a longer period of time, I probably left it in there for about 25 minutes that I prefer it medium rare to medium. Um, so if I was going to do that, I would probably just grill it to the cook temperature rather than putting it in the oven at all. But you could certainly mark it, put it in a 350 degree oven and you're probably five, six, seven, eight minutes, uh, to a, a nice medium rare. I'm going to break out with the different thoughts, and this is where we probably should apologize to our vegetarian and vegan listeners and let them know that we'll have a balancing program. <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all vegetables all the time. Next show. Yay. <laughs> yeah, because this, 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 yeah, this is all meat. So It's so much fun to work with meat if you do eat meat. Um, I like the process of handling, handling uh, different cuts of meat, having to clean them, uh, cleaning a tenderloin, um, portioning things, uh, you know, I, it's one of my favorite parts of the day is work doing meat, uh, cutting butchery. Uh, we do not buy large pieces of meat. We don't, you know, we don't serve large portions in my kitchen, so we don't need, uh, huge pieces of meat. And, um, we recently did a show, um, talking about what's happened with American cooking. And one of the things that has changed since, uh, World War II is, you know, we were doing a lot of a lot of offcuts with our meat. Well, people were breaking down large pieces of meat. People were using all the cuts, liver, kidneys, um, because that's the way that we always worked in the whole world. Um, and then at some point, I would say, you know, you talk about um, uh, the center cut of the beef tenderloin. These primal cuts became very popular, and people, and and also became easier for kitchens to just work with primal cuts and not have to do a lot of meat butchery. It takes up a lot of labor and time in a kitchen. And I think some of that fell by the wayside and then it picked back up again within the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, it, it is, we are back to using all the, all the cuts and I think that is fantastic and a very good trend in cooking in this country. Thinking about American beef versus beef almost anywhere else in the world, there are a lot of other places that are famous for their beef in different ways. One thing that's just immediately different is our cattle. I mean, what, what, sure. what the, you know, the most cattle commercially raised uh, in the U.S. is, I mean, is what, 15, 16, 1700 pounds, right? Uh, when, when working to, to understand uh, Argentine cooking and, and, and Argentine uh, beef and sourcing it for Barbasquez, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, oh, my God. Cattle are smaller and leaner, right? Yeah, they're smaller, they're leaner, and, and you're, you're talking about eight, 900 pounds, um, and a lot of time on the grass, two years on the grass. Mm -hmm. uh, it, as it, and it tastes as, like as opposed it. To, yeah. <laughs> it's a very different piece of, of meat, of beef. Well, and, uh, and, and different cuts are dealt with in, in a little bit different ways, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's something that uh, just finding a proper source, we actually, because you, you can't get Argentine beef in the U.S., we... Uh, we went to the the neighbor of Uruguay, mm -hmm. and and got superb beef that was super different. It almost reminded me more of uh, Piemontese 
uh, beef. That, you know, lean, really good flavor. Not, not that irony taste. Right. Uh, that you sometimes get. Mm-hmm. Uh, frankly, a lot of French beef is that way. Um, but it, it was just a shock to the system to see totally different. Yeah, it's very uh, different. Animal husbandry and and it's all it's all wild raised and mm-hmm. and uh, you know it, it's beef husbandry from 150 years ago basically. Right. We we produce the best beef cattle in the world. There's no question. And uh, there are different philosophies by different farmers and by different packing houses and producers and the co-ops, whatever, whoever, whoever it is that's actually taking uh, the animals to slaughter and selling it have their, they all have some sort of distinct um, criteria for how they want to, the animal to be fed, raised, animal husbandry and feed and lifestyle. And it's, it's fascinating, but in the end, we produce amazing beef cattle. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, you can argue that Wagyu from Japan is it's, but it's such a different process. It's almost not fair to compare the two. It's also a very different price point. Um, so, you know, there's when you talk about Wagyu and how incredible it is, um, because it is, uh, you know, it's just a different to me. It's just t- such a different process, but yeah, we we uh, we we really do some some great farming with our cattle, and um, we are lucky to have the the beef that we have in this country. Good thing when Eric's to, coming on. When we get to the next segment, uh, that's that's kind of what I want to get into with him first and foremost is mm-hmm. the beef that's grown in different places in the world and what he has seen change because he's exactly. had a, a, a long career dealing with beef and lots of other meats in the U.S. So when we come back on Formidable Fun Food and Wine, we're going to have a chat with Eric Ustewick, a longtime professional in the meat industry, purveyor, uh, our supplier for decades, and uh, and super knowledgeable, and, and both European and American uh, perspective on beef. Yeah. On Formidable Fun Food and Wine. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're lucky today to have with us Eric Ustewick, a long time. Is it safe to call you a beef professional? Yeah. yeah. Or the meat king, as he is <laughs> known. King, That's yes, my favorite. Yeah. I've heard them all. <laughs> Monsieur Le Bouff. <laughs> Monsieur Le Bouff. Yeah, love that. in French, sure. <laughs> yeah. Whatever works. We love you, Eric. Thank you for everything you've done for us for the last 25 years. And we're so yeah. thrilled for you that you have gotten to retire. You are amazing. Well, and I love you. you. I love yeah. you, so man. So we figured we figure we'll make you do some work. <laughs> That's great. I love it. So... Cindy and I, in in the first part of the program, we were going back and forth about what what are common cuts, what are what's going on. You know, it, Cindy's very proud of the quality of American beef, and I was talking a little bit around some beef in the rest of the world. Can you add perspective on uh, beef raised in the U.S.? Like, there's a lot of terminology, 
And there's a lot of classification expectation around beef in different places, whether it's in the US or in the UK or in Argentina. And, and lots of terms that fly around like choice or prime or just can, would you set the landscape up for us a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we, we as Americans, uh, e even though we've become better traveled than we used to, so we get to go more places. American beef to me um, and, and being raised in Europe is, is probably one of the best tasting beefs for an everyday beef um, in the world. Um, it, it, it's raised very different uh, versus Europe versus South American beef uh, and then versus Asia, especially in Japan with the Japanese Wagyu. Um, the American beef to get into it is generally raised uh, on the fields, eating grass, um, but also being fed corn in the fields. And with the larger processing plants, uh, the cattle end up in a feedlot. Uh, those are really big institutions where all the cattle gets taken to and they're being converted from uh, roughage to corn uh, and several other things. Um, that is really not what cows and steers would pick on their diet if they're walking out in the field. But what it does for us, and this started in the Second World War when we had to feed the two and a half million soldiers that were across the ocean uh, in a very fast way and on a daily basis, uh, was to raise these cattle much faster much fattier and bigger. Uh, what the corn did, it, it added 50 to 100 pounds of muscle weight within 90 or 120 days. Wow. Um, and it made it better tasting. It gave it uh, the more marbling that we're always looking for. And over the years, we've done a lot of testing with several animals. And I think the Black Angus is, is one of the most preferred ones for, for cattle growers now because they already have that natural um, marbling going on and, and the quality of the beef is there, uh, the black Angus. And there's also a red Angus, which you don't see very often. But um, at the same time, it comes also to a point where the animal actually changes internally. And uh, generally these animals are really good at picking out certain things out in the wild or out in the fields to make themselves feel better if they're a little off. When they're in a feedlot, there's nothing to pick except of what they throw at you to eat. And so antibiotics come in place and on and on and on. That makes them also more hungry. And they figured out that right at the time of the Second World War, they figured out that that worked also. And the animals would eat more. Um, so the animals, they taste great, but at the same time, they will also, um, you know, maybe create a little bit more inflammation within us. Now, most of us eat not that much beef to where it would affect us. But so by a lot of people, it's being looked at. And that's why it's looking after alternatives, as we all know, the grass fed, um, which mm -hmm. all animals are grass fed until they go to a feedlot. So but in South America, they're always grass fed. That's a totally different animal. And they're also mostly Angus and Hereford is another preferred, uh, Hereford is another preferred breed that uh, is being used. They're both Scottish, uh, Angus and Hereford. And um, these animals grow up in South America, out in the wild, uh, 
having very healthy lifestyles. And the same for New Zealand. Uh, I've been to several farms a, a few years back, including venison farms, but uh, the animals there have all the fresh green grass and, and clovers and whatever else they like to eat. And there are no, there are no feedlots that come in place. Uh, we have several small local suppliers that have great Angus programs and they do feed their animals, but they feed them corn in the field. So then the, the animal still has the ability to go out and seek out uh, certain grasses. They, they're slightly different, but the ones in South America, you can really taste the difference. When you, when you eat a piece of meat, um, as an American, you say, well, I don't like it because you're missing that buttery, fatty flavor. Um, even though a lot of the animals out South America also have marbling, it just doesn't quite taste the same. It also has a very high irony, minerally taste, which is because of the grass. Uh, when you get some grass fat stuff from certain companies, that can be a really high content, especially if the quality is lower. So if it's not a choice or even a prime animal and it has less fat than that, and it's been grass fat, it's very different tasting. And then you go to Europe where there are a lot of high quality animals, but it's not necessarily just grass fed. Uh, there are a lot of countries in Northern Europe where the grass is not around in the winter time. So then the cows and the, and the bulls, I guess, are inside and indoors and they get fed different things, but they don't end up in feedlots. So they're different altogether. As I remember growing up, my father would get cattle and they eat a lot of cow meat also, which in America, cow meat um, referred to as cows after the dairy industry. Uh, they end up for hot dogs and luncheon meats and stuff like that. Uh, there, my father would buy cows that were like two or three years old. Uh, they've been out and about and uh, they tasted very good. But again, once you're used to that flavor of the American beef cattle, uh, mm -hmm. I think you never want to go back. And I think that's why it's really hard for supermarkets and uh, other places to really almost force uh, the American public to eat something different that they're not used to. It's really hard to get used to that flavor. Anybody that's open to the idea and has that, that palate can get used to it. But I think most restaurants um, have sort of a hard time with just having grass fed stuff. Um, so the cattle also, the age has changed. After the mad cow went all crazy, uh, and when that came out several years ago, um, cattle are generally not raised beyond 20 months because that's when the mad cow disease becomes a higher risk. Um, so at 20 months, 18 months sometimes, versus in Europe, in France, one of these old steers that's been hanging around for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, and it's been eating all the goodies and it's been fed some corn on the side. His marbling has grown in a natural way. His fat is just uh, big and bulky and it's aged. And those animals taste really good, mm -hmm. but that took a long time. Um, we're feeding so many people, not just in this country, but in the world. We don't have time to do it. These animals have to go 18, 20 months they're really not matured enough. And you're missing that in today's beef flavor in the American, uh, on the American beef side, is that the age of the animals is just not there. Now, most people are young enough to where they don't know the difference. Hmm. But we've, because we've been doing it, you know, for, for quite a few times, not only so we can process them faster, 
uh, you know, running through the whole process, but also because of the mad cow. So a lot of things have changed. Um, and, and it's for a person to pick out what they like. Um, and if you, if you eat beef only once or twice a week, then why not eat the best of what you like, which to me would be a prime Angus, you know, ribeye steak or a nice piece of strip or a piece of sirloin flat meat or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and preferably from the U S of A. So I, I get stuck on flavor from some, from some of the other beef producing places immediately I think of Charolais in France and there is no question it is not as buttery as beef in the U.S. Uh, but as you said that the, the flavor is a bit different that there's a, there's an intensity to the flavor that is a bit different indeed uh, and and in Argentina like those I mean you know we had a supplier in Uruguay that uh, was sending us beef for uh, for Barvesquez for uh, uh, a good stretch mm -hmm. until they got bought by someone larger that kind of screwed up their operation. And uh, that initial grass-fed product from down there was from like 800-pound steers. That's a big veal in the U.S., isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. And yes, and again, uh, they don't grow to the size because of the grass. Um, the corn uh, and the different feed and antibiotics, uh, if that gets to be put in place also adds a lot to it. Um, but steers today are so much bigger, even at 20 months than what they used to be. Um, but back in the days, I remember steers, as I just described, the ones that were able to walk for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years were really very mature looking, a lot of muscle, a lot of times double muscle animals, what the way we call them in Holland. Um, and they looked great. And they were unbelievable and they were super heavy uh, a, a hind quarter which is a quarter of the animal um, hanging would weigh 250 pounds uh, that wouldn't be any problem uh, so that's a thousand pounds clean on the hook those animals are huge i have a friend in holland who has three butcher shops uh, together with his brother and he still raises a lot of those animals themselves and, and a lot of those are crossings they're not necessarily angus they could be charolais they're they do really well. And also Limousine, which is another breed out of France, uh, they do really well becoming that heavy. And uh, so, yes, I think the size has a lot to do with it, but also the industry is trying to keep the size down, even though they're trying to make them bigger so they get a better yield. It's because of the sizes of the muscles. Uh, as we, you as restaurateurs and, and Cindy, um, you want to cut you know, five ounce fillets, eight ounce fillets, six ounce fillets, the tenderloin cannot have a diameter bigger than, let's say, four inches by the time it's cleaned or three inches, mm -hmm. preferably. Right. Um, because otherwise you'll end up cutting steaks at a certain size, but they're going to be way too thin because the diameter is too big. Uh, and, and it's the same for a strip or a ribeye. Uh, you know, to cut a 12 ounce ribeye steak today out of the cattle that we get in our warehouse, is never thicker than an inch, which is really not enough for a Impossible. steak. Right. So it's a problem. So we recommend 16 ounces, but that's big. <laughs> so what do you do? <laughs> what What are these 18 to 20 month animals weighing average weight, Eric? Now, um, on the hook, once they're once they're ready to go, meaning four quarters, um, I'd say six, seven hundred pounds. Okay. 
and that's um, uh, you know, and and that's about the right size. But they can also be bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the days, and they are bigger. Back in the days, in the eighties, nineties, we used to get cases of tenderloins, and if somebody wanted six and up tenders, meaning six and up a piece out of a box of twelve, uh, we would have to look for them. Uh, today we would have to look for just the opposite. Yeah, you have to Less look for mine now. Oh, and you know the story. five and down, right, if, exactly. If my boys don't go through 12, 15 boxes to find mm-hmm. some five and a halfs and downs, and sometimes yours are still close to six because are, those are literally the smallest ones we have. Yeah. So cattle, cattle are heavy, uh, and there's a lot of it out there. And when something happens with COVID in the beginning where it all stopped, Restaurants put the brakes on 99.9%, uh, re- and everybody put the brakes on everything. And all of a sudden, all this cattle is in the pipeline, but it's not moving. Wow. And it just keeps growing. And every week, it's another 20 pounds, 30 pounds. And, it's, and, it's, and, it, and all of a sudden, it comes out on the market, and we're like looking at ribeyes, look like they're from an elephant. Wow. Um, so that's, that's a problem when it comes to yields, but also a bigger, much bigger problem for the restaurants. Eric, just... I've- I think it'd probably be really useful for listeners if, because you, you've tasted beef from a lot of different places. If someone wants to eat beef, where is it raised humanely? What should they look for? Um, and f- for flavor, you know, like what what is top of the pyramid for you? What, what, and, and what should people potentially try to avoid? I think top of the pyramid is is deal with a company that you're maybe already familiar with. I think if you go to the average stuff that's out there in the supermarkets, you really don't know what you're getting. Um, you know, a lot of your local products are not necessarily the best tasting products, but there are some local companies that are doing a very good job. And up here in Phoenix, um, that would be Rosetta Farms, and they do a fantastic job. Um, it, it's a smaller packer. Every animal is being touched and know what they're being fed. Um, Creekstone Farms, to me, has always outcut just about any other company that we cut against. Uh, fantastic problem, product. It's from a one-plant source uh, out of Kansas. Uh, they source their animals um, at, a, at, a, at a pace to where uh, they have the farmers raising for them um, and they've grown over the years, but they haven't grown like a mammoth company. And I think that's why they're keeping the quality of their product so great. So it is really hard for people to say where to go and do that. Um, but just really source it and ask your butcher um, to, and look on the Internet also. And it's not always possible to find something local, but at the same time saying, well, that's the greatest thing ever because it doesn't necessarily have to meet the quality parts. Uh, because don't forget a prime animal, that's only about 6% of the total. Everything else is choice, select, and neural, and beyond that. Uh, And generally, people like to eat choice or higher, which means choice or prime. So when we come back on Formula Wolf from Food and Wine, it's uh, more talk about beef with Eric Gustawick, Cindy and I on WIPR. Thank you.
Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. Chef Cindy Wolf. And with us today, we have Eric Oosterwick. Am I completely butchering, pun intended, your, uh, Osterweik. your last name? Eric Osterweik. You close. Osterweik. 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 There we go. Got to work on my Dutch. That's all right. <laughs> that must have been fun for your daughters to grow up with that last name in school. I thought about that this morning. Yeah. And then you call you, you name your one daughter, Marika. So she she said, you know what? I can't do all this. I'm calling myself Kiki, and that's the end of it. Kiki Osterweich <laughs> exactly. is bad enough. I am I am really curious to know, Eric, what you would suggest for some less expensive cuts of beef now, uh, since you know prices are just so crazy. Yes, prices are crazy uh, on all proteins and on on a lot of other things too. But that's sure. just the way it is for the restaurant world. Uh, for customers to know, they're they're uh, they're having. I think the hardest time ever uh, to, to, to turn a profit because of um, labor is still hard to find. It, it's opening up a little bit, but it's also a lot more expensive. Right. And, and rental oh, properties yeah. have gone up. And now the protein prices is up. Produce hasn't gotten any cheaper. Uh, and it's to put that same amount of food and the same quality on a plate um, costs so much more so the restaurants automatically have to charge more and i totally understand it but people really should understand it that that's the case they're not charging more because they just came off a bad time they're charging more because they have to make a profit we can't do anything for free um but at the same time in the beef business there are alternatives and there are alternatives in in most proteins um, in the beef world when you're talking filet mignon it, it comes from a tenderloin and as we go out for dinner, we usually used to this hockey puck style piece of meat that is sort of rounded. And uh, that's out of the center of the tenderloin. But then you have two ends to it. One is the head of the tenderloin. The other one is the tail. The head of the tenderloin, you can still cut some petite fillets out of, some smaller size ones. But then you have everything else. So at Fells Point... For years and years, uh, we've been masters at taking byproducts and, and don't let that scare you, that word, because the tail of a tenderloin, which is just as great as the center, uh, but you can't cut it in that hockey puck thing. So now you have a tail. And what do you do with it? Well, generally, they were sold, and they still are, at a much lesser uh, cost than the center part of it. Uh, what we've done at Fells Point, we've taken all these different parts, uh, the vein end of the New York strip steaks and the tails of the tenderloins and the tips and the side muscle of the head. Um, we've taken so many byproducts and created something out of it to still have an alternative for a restaurant. So a tail, as we started to cut a lot of fillets, we ended up with a lot of byproducts. We took the tails and we ran them to a flattening machine down to a half inch and created a five, six, seven ounce steak, depending on what you want it, to maybe add to a salad as a protein, or maybe add to a really good steak sandwich, or a minute steak, or just with frit, um, a, filet, a filet mignon, but not at a cost of, let's say on an average price, a choice filet would be 25 to $30 a pound. I think they're still far elevated from that now just because of the higher levels of cost. But, but, um, but the tail is at 12, 13, 14. 
maybe 15. So it's, it's less than half the money. And, uh, and, and that's a great item. Uh, the tips themselves, which are even less than the tail, they're tips, but they're still filet mignon. Uh, they could be used in a very creative way by a creative chef in many other different ways. Um, the better the restaurant, it's really hard to do something with byproducts. Uh, and we all understand that. Um, now, the natural muscles of the animal, there are several cuts. And I think we've spoken about this uh, a few years ago on the show that we generally talk about filet mignon, New York strip or ribeye steaks. Um, and if you go to a supermarket, you might find some flank steak. You might find uh, maybe a few other cuts, but then you go into the round cuts, which we generally stay away from in the restaurant world. Um, but there are some other cuts. There's teres major, which is a very small muscle out of the, uh, out of the shoulder. There's How flat iron. Has good flavor. Oh, absolutely. Great flavor. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if you can get your hands off some really good prime, um, some really good prime terrace majors or even Wagyu, uh, they're absolutely delicious. Okay. And, and uh, so a little bit hard to portion for a restaurant, but again, we did that many years ago and we started selling a bistro filet, which was cut out of a terrace major. Uh, six or eight or 10 ounces, whatever you wanted. So restaurants didn't have to worry about cleaning them and, and doing all that stuff. So we did it for them. Um, the sirloin flap, uh, the bavet steak, as we know it, to me, again, it's one of my favorite cuts. And uh, we cut them in portion. And it's really hard to do for a restaurant because there's some uh, really thin parts to it, some very thin parts to it, which are not so great in the restaurant, and then some thicker parts. Um, that is a lesser expensive meat. Now, I was going to mention skirt steak, mm -hmm. but that used to be a lot cheaper. Uh, yeah. Skirt oh. steak for months has been way over $20 a pound. Gosh, that's unbelievable. And, and this is unclean before it's portioned and everything else. Wow. Um, if you would order portions today, you're probably looking at $30, which is insane. That is insane. Uh, it is absolutely insane. But it, uh, I think sooner or later that will all correct. So we, we have all these, these products in the animal. The culotte, which is the top of the sirloin. It's a fantastic piece of meat. Leave a little edge of fat on there and cut that in a six, eight ounce piece of meat um, on, a, on a beautiful grill. And, and that's really all you want. So there are plenty of uh, cheaper cuts out there that are from the natural muscle or they're created uh, from another muscle out of the animal uh, okay. just to make it a, a better value. And, and restaurants should talk to their companies and say, hey, listen, I, I still have the ribeye on the menu. I still have the filet, but I need to have a few things to set that off because even a chicken breast is not that cheap anymore. Right. An airline breast probably goes for 6 $7 a pound. Oh my gosh. Um, which is wow. that's so unbelievable. Yeah, that's it's so almost shameful, gosh. but I can't it help it. Yeah. Eric, quick question. Yes. Sir. So, do you think when something like a, a, a hanger steak jumps in price of the skirt, which has been crazy, or is it fashion? Is I mean, I guess it's just demand, right? That drives it. It's not like that. It's not like the proportions of the animals are different. So. Yeah, it, it's it's demand, uh, but it's also because everybody jumped on the same bandwagon. You know, the two by fours went up, and this went up, and that went up, and so now the truck 
the, the truck drivers are, are charging three times as much for a load and sometimes more hmm. than they did whatever a year ago or two years ago yeah this is so, this is all covid related stuff right eric isn't that the i, I main... would that's that's yeah. when it all started yeah. but it just yeah. got out of hand because they raised more now we need to raise it more now we and it, it just just no stopping to it uh I, I think it's starting to calm down as we find more normality as it's coming back uh, but everything is more expensive so tony the question is if that animal costs much more to begin with to get it to the butcher shop to get it to our shop and then now that tenderloin has become so much more in, in all, let's take a chicken. It's a little easy to compare. If that chicken goes from one to $2 a pound, where do you put the money once you start cutting it up? Well, in this country, it's the wings. Um, chicken wings are 4 to $5 a pound. Oh, and that's gosh. because <laughs> oh my god didn't they used to wow. be like i mean i don't buy chicken wings didn't they used to be like 89 cents a pound oh uh, it's it was the cheapest thing but it's insane uh, oh. Oh, but, wow. but why but why is that is because the chicken bones didn't go up because you can only sell so many chicken bones so now your chicken costs twice as much but all your byproduct you're still getting the same amount of for uh, money for it as when you did when it was a dollar mm -hmm. so that that difference you have to make up in your primals yeah. meaning the breast meat and the skin that you take off is still worth nothing. Um, so the meat now has to cost more. So when you go for that boneless chicken filet, you're paying six, seven, eight, nine dollars a pound. Yeah. And, 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 and it's the same with it with a cow. Uh, there are certain muscles where you cannot put more money on because nobody wants to buy them to begin with. And then what suffers is what everybody else wants, Tony. And that's the answer to your question. Yes. Your, your hangers and everything skyrockets because the total amount of money that that animal is going to bring is going to show it has to show a profit for somebody and and uh, so that's that's the way that works and not until that total price comes down we'll see everything come along with it what is a sleeper cut or two for price quality relationship yeah i, I think i think as far as brazing i still love a really good piece of chuck flap um, and, and even a good chuck roast and, and look for something that has some fat in it. Uh, don't try to braise anything that doesn't have fat because it's absolutely right. awful. Right. Um, and, and for the grill, especially if you have a group of people, um, I absolutely love a good flank steak again, from a good quality animal. Uh, it is really nice. And, and, uh, a, a piece of sirloin flat would cost you a lot more money, but a flank steak, you can, I think still get for anywhere from seven to $10 a pound. Uh, which already is not cheap. But again, that would feed a group of four to eight people easily. And, yeah. and I think that's a sleeper cut and flank steaks are readily available, I think, in most places. Uh, and then the terrace majors, I don't see those very often in the retail trade. Uh, but ask your butcher for it. And they're, they're absolutely fantastic. Easy to grill, very fast, a diameter of about an inch and a half or two inches. And you grill them, uh, season them with some good salt, and you just rest them and slice them. And that's a fantastic piece of meat. I've done it for many soccer parties at my house and everybody will <laughs> always ask, I've never had this before. What is it? Going, it's Terra's major. <laughs> take Very it, you know, take it to the supermarket. <laughs> so yeah, those okay. are great cuts. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, this is, this is great. It's always great. You're welcome. Thank you. That was fun, Tony. So glad that we was had fun. him on. Now, now I just want to go open wine to pair with beef. Right. Terrace Major, words to 
to think about. It's well, fun. He had that, a lot of he had that, a lot of suggestions. Really appreciate it. The thing about a topic like that is you just you realize there's so much more to cover that right. we're just scratching the surface of it, which is I don't know. We're also kind of nerds for it. So <laughs> anyway, that's that's all we have time for today. Uh, if you want to download this or any other one of our broadcasts, you can go to the WYPR website, wypr.org. Uh, look for the Foreman Wolf page, and there's a whole menu of goodies there for you. If you want to email us, it's foremanwolf at wypr.org. If you want to follow Chef Cindy Wolf on social media, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook as Chef Cindy Wolf. My Instagram is the real Tony Foreman. And thanks so much for listening. Happy Sunday. Mm-hmm.